Exodus 17, and we're looking at verses uh, 8 through 16. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it tonight. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we stop now and ask you uh, to be here with us. We ask that you would work. Uh, we, are, we are needy. We cannot understand your word. We cannot hear your word without your working. So would you please, by your Holy Spirit, be here? Would you over, overcome our limitations? Would you overcome our sin? Certainly this, uh, my sins as the speaker. Would you help us? Would you cause us to hear? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've, uh, if you've been with us, you know that this semester, which is uh, winding down rapidly, we are, uh, we've been studying through Exodus. And uh, every week we say, right, that Exodus is the great story of God's salvation of his people, Israel, uh, from their, their slavery in Egypt. That he brings them out in this, in this momentous salvation. And our, our theme for the semester is that Exodus is really the pattern of salvation, that the ways in which we see God save in Exodus, uh, are, it's emblematic of, it's still the same ways that he saves uh, here and now, saves us today. So as we sort of uh, focus in and examine these stories, that what we see about God and about his salvation, it teaches us a lot about, about what it looks like to experience his salvation uh, here and now. And tonight, what I, what I think we see in this passage is that God's salvation is a fight. Or maybe, maybe better said, His salvation involves a fight. It involves our struggle against an enemy. And so tonight we're going to look at three things about fighting against this enemy. Uh, first, we're going to see that we fight against the enemy for ourselves as God's people. Secondly, we're going to see that we fight against the enemy because God fights for us. And thirdly, we fight against the enemy together. All right, so first, I want you to see that we fight against the enemy for ourselves, that God calls us to fight. 
And so as we, uh, as we jump in here, let's sort of rehearse where we are in the story like we do. Uh, like we said, Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and they've been there for like 400 years. And God shows up and he says, I'm going to bring you out. And he raises up Moses, and Pharaoh refuses. And so he, he causes all these, um, all these plagues, right, all this trouble and judgment to rain down on Egypt. Uh, so because uh, Pharaoh in Egypt is disobeying God, won't let his people go. So eventually he relents and Israel uh, leaves. And then uh, Pharaoh changes his mind. They chase them. They end up against the Red Sea, the sea on the one side, the Egyptians on the other. And they seem to be stuck. God parts the Red Sea. People of God walk through safely. Egypt follows them, crashes the water down on them. Uh, and, And the enemy's dead, right? And then God begins to lead them through the desert, the wilderness, uh, towards the promised land. And uh, they, what have we encountered? That uh, they don't have food at first, and they grumble, and they don't have water, and God continues to provide for his people. And uh, so just now, or uh, right, just after giving them water from the rock, which we looked at last week, we come to this story. And so all of a sudden, Israel is attacked by this, uh, this group of Amalekites, or the people of Amalek. And uh, as, we, as we look at this, I want, you to, I want you to listen to Deuteronomy 25. We get a little bit more information uh, later in, in the Bible about what's going on here. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18 says this. Remember, when Amal- remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So basically what we learn is that this group, right, is Israel is, is evidently leaving Rephidim, leaving camp as they're heading out. Uh, this, this group of people, they attack the, the, the very end of the, the caravan. They attack from behind, and it's the people, as the text said, the ones that are, um, that are lagging behind, the ones that are going slowest, right? Uh, the, uh, the elderly, the young, the sick. Right, the ones that would be the easiest to, uh, to defeat. So they sneak up from behind and attack. And then the, uh, the text says that they did not fear God. So what, what you, you know, very clearly see is that these, this group of people are they're against God and his purposes because they're against his people. That to attack, to attack God's people is to attack God himself. And so therefore, they're his enemies. They they don't fear him. They don't want to see his purposes come to fruition. And so they attack. And God, and and you see in verse 9, God, through Moses, he tells Israel, go fight. It's time to fight. Now, I want you to think about that for a second because that's pretty unique, or it's it's very unique, at this point um, in, in the story of Exodus. Right? Think about how how active or how passive, maybe, um, Israel has been in this salvation story to this point. Right? What, what have we seen happen? Um, right? The history that we just rehearsed. When they're in Egypt and God rains down these plagues, what do they do? Nothing. They're not active at all. They just... They just exist and don't have to endure the plagues, and particularly the Passover, right? What's the whole point of the Passover? They don't do it. They're passed over. 
And then, of course, uh, God leads them out. And then the Red Sea. What do they do, right? We looked at that in depth. God, God says, just stand there and be quiet. That's all you have to do, and I'll save you. So all they did was stand there and then walk through. So up until now, everything that we've seen about their salvation, they've been incredibly passive. While God has, has defeated their ultimate enemy. It's all been by his work at his hand. And so now, interestingly enough, God is calling them to fight, to be active in fighting against this enemy. So even though their, their biggest, the, the battle has, the, or rather the war has been won, they, they are free. They are not under Egyptian rule. Egypt doesn't have any claim on them anymore. They are free. And it was all by God's hand. But now, there's still battles to be fought. A couple of weeks ago, we said, you know, we're going to look at that. The enemy's defeated, but there's still going to be battles, and here we are. The ultimate enemy's defeated, and they're free by God's work, but now he calls them to be active in these battles that they're going to face. You've probably heard an illustration like this before, but uh, you can think about it a little bit like, um, a little bit like World War II, right? Um, at the end of, uh, towards the end of World War II, uh, with the Allies' victory at D-Day, the war, was, the war was done. The war was decided. It was over. The enemy could not win. And yet there were still battles that were fought after that. The outcome couldn't be changed, but there were, there were still battles to be fought. And that's a little bit like what we're seeing here. God is calling them, look, I have done all the work. But there are still battles to be fought, and you are going to be active in them. So what does that mean for for you and I? Well, it it basically means exactly the same thing. As we look at this, as we see the pattern of salvation, right, which is our theme, as we see that here, as we see redemptive history unfold in the New Testament, we see that God's salvation, in, in one sense in the sense of, of, of what the Bible is going to call justification. Right? We're going to get sort of uh, theological and technical, maybe a little nerdy here, but it's, it's good nerdy. Um, that God's salvation in that sense, uh, His justification, is entirely His work. Sorry, so what is justification? Um, justification is when God declares His people He declares someone to be perfect, to be righteous. And he he credits you, he credits Jesus' righteousness to you. And then he takes your sin and he credits that to Jesus. So that the, the ultimate enemy is defeated. Sin and death is done away with. And in that, if you're a believer, if you trust that his death was for you, you and I are, are completely passive. All, all we do is receive it, right? That's what, uh, that's what faith is. That's the good news of the gospel. That something was accomplished for you. And it's a gift. But the moment that someone's saved, the moment that someone's justified, saved in that sense, God begins to, we could say it this way, continue to save them in this process that the Bible calls sanctification. And very simply, sanctification is the, is the, uh, 
this process that, so God has declared you to be righteous. And now he's basically going to grow you to make you into what he's declared you to be. It's the process of him growing you to be holy. In some ways, we could call that process the the Christian life. And it's in that process, it's in that sense of God saving you that he calls you and I to be very active. He calls you and I to fight. He calls us to fight. And that's the first thing that, uh, as we begin to apply this, that's the first thing that I want you to see. That the Christian life is not one of no struggle and easy street and, you know, things used to be bad and then I found Jesus and everything's been great. That the Christian life, the normal Christian life, involves struggle. It involves a fight. All right, so what is it a fighting, what are you fighting against? Listen, listen to Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. This is the whole armor of God section, if you're familiar with that. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in other words, Paul is saying, look, if you were a Christian, just like these people did, uh, you know, the, the Amalekites are their enemy. If you are a Christian, you have an enemy. And you are called to fight against that enemy. And to fight hard. And that enemy, Paul is very clear to say, is not other people. Right? We do not fight against flesh and blood. So in other words, uh, your enemy is not the Muslim. Your enemy is not the atheist. Your enemy is not the homosexual. Those are not the enemy. The enemy that you face as a Christian is a spiritual enemy. The forces of evil in this world and, and, and inside of us, right? It's, your enemy is sin. And God calls you and I to fight against it. To be in an active, lifelong fight against sin. To work to put it to death. So look, that means that, means that you, if you're a believer, you can't be complacent with sin. Again, like I just said, the normal Christian life is filled with struggling against it. So look, that means you can expect struggle. You can expect to struggle with sin. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. Now look, the whole point of this is that's not to say, like, just to chalk it up and say, like, well, I guess we're all going to struggle, so what's the big deal? Right? No, that's what this point's about. Fight against it. But if you find yourself... Having to fight against it, I want you to be encouraged by that. That when you strive for righteousness, the enemy is going to push back. When you feel like sin is kicking your tail, in some sense, that's a, that's a good sign. It's a sign of life. So look, what does that look like? It looks like, at the very least, it means that we can't take the path of least resistance. We can't take the path of least resistance against sin and just just give in to it. 
um, we can't just look and say, well, I guess if God's going to change me, then I'll just wait for him to change me and I'll just do what I want to. No, we're called to fight. It, look, it could look like a million different things, but it, it might look like this. It might look like that you have to do the hard work of not just chalking up um, the way that you make fun of other people. Of not just chalking that up to, well, I, that's just kind of my personality. So, I mean, I guess that's just kind of the way I am. Or chalking up uh, your anger to your personality and the way you are. You're called to, we're called to fight against it. Um... Or uh, it might look like fighting, not, not saying, well, everybody does it. So what's the big deal in regard to whatever it might be, to pornography or controlling your eating or whatever it is? It's, it's, not, it, it's not okay, basically, to say, like, well, everybody struggles with it. So it's not that big a deal. We're called to fight. We're called to fight against it. It might look like um, getting a filter on your computer, getting a, putting restrictions on your phone, or who knows what. It might look like fighting to put down your schoolwork at the appropriate time. It might look like fighting to say no to something good that somebody's asked you to be involved with. To, to actually work against your idolatry of performance. It's hard, but we're called to fight. All right, so I, I think you see that in the Christian life, we are called to fight against this enemy for ourselves. But secondly, I want you to see that we fight against the enemy because God fights for us. All right, God calls Israel, Joshua and Israel, to fight for themselves, be active. But that's not all he says. And this, I think, is in some sense the highlight of the passage. is my favorite part that I enjoyed the most sort of uncovering here. Because look, if God just says to these people, go fight. Or if he just looks at us and says, fight against sin. And that's it. That's not, that's discouraging. That's scary. Right? That's sort of a problem. But that's not all he says. Um, notice what Moses says to Joshua, verse 9. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so I think it, I think in some sense it, it, it might have gone, the thought process in Joshua's mind, obviously I'm taking some license here, but it might be something like this. He hears, go fight, and thinks, uh, I don't know. And he says, I will go up there and hold up the staff of God. And Joshua thinks, let's get it on. Let's go. Go fight. I don't know about, I'm going to go up there with the staff of God. Let's go get them. Now, why? Can, can you hear it the way Joshua would have heard it? Right? Why would Moses be holding? Why would Moses is holding up the staff of God? Why would that change anything? Why would that encourage him to fight? Right? Well, think about what the staff, the staff was. Think about what it's done in Exodus so far. Right? It's a sign of God's judgment on His enemies, 
which at the same time always brought salvation for his people. Right? It's the staff that went before Pharaoh and he said, hey, you need to let my, God says, let my people go. And uh, he says like, uh, yeah, so who's God? And the staff, right, turns into a snake and swallows up the other staffs. And then it's the staff that goes on to, uh, the staff, right, symbolic of God doing it, right? Parting the Red Sea. And then Moses raised his staff and the Red Sea parted back killing all of the Egyptians that were chasing him. It was the staff, remember we looked at last week, that strikes the rock in judgment and it brings out water. God has done amazing things, right? The symbol of how God fights for his people. So now, right, can you hear what Joshua heard? He hears, he hears you know, God through Moses saying, go fight because I'm going to fight. You go and fight against that enemy. And by the way, this is my fight. And that's what Joshua hears. And that's what allows him to go charge into battle against these people. And that's what we see play out, right? Moses goes up on the hill, and when his hands are raised with the staff, and Israel wins. And when they lower, Israel's pushed back, and they start to lose. And, and what's clear is that this is God's fight. That ultimately this is in his hands. That he's in charge. That he's going to win this battle just like he did the war. And it's all going to be done by his power and his strength and not theirs. And so they can charge into battle. They know we can fight because God is fighting. Look, so what about us? How does that matter to us or apply to us? Look, same thing, right? As we, as we see how this bears itself out in redemptive history in the New Testament, listen to Philippians 2, 12 through 13. I, I clipped out just a little bit, but this is one you want to, you know, underline, star, whatever. So Paul, writing to this church in Philippi, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. Paul's speaking to Christians. And he says. Work out your salvation. And now that might. Send off some alarms right. Wait that seems like everything. Against everything that Paul like just railed about right. Like. It's all about God's grace. But he's. He's not talking about your justification, right? Being forgiven of your sins once and for all. He's talking about your sanctification in your fight against sin. He says, work it out. And then, because God is at work. Fight against sin. Work because God is at work in you. Both to will and to work. Right, We work because God is at work. His work is foundational. It's what upholds our working, our fighting. Look, I don't know if this illustration is going to help, but we're going to go for it. We're going to try it. In some ways, I think it's a really good one. But look, here's the deal. It's not a, no illustration is perfect. Um, so yeah, you, you can't push this one too far. But if you've ever noticed in the movies, apparently... Anybody can land an airplane, right? You know the story, right? The pilot and the co-pilot, if there is one, they're both either, you know, incapacitated, dead, or whatever. 
There's nobody else that knows how to land a plane, and you know, half the time it's some kid. But somebody that has no clue about landing a plane is up there, and they talk to the to what air traffic control, and somebody walks him through it, and he lands, you know, the plane lands safely, and yay. So when they land the plane safely, here's the question: Who landed the plane? Well, it's a matter of perspective in some sense, isn't it? Because on the one hand, let's say the kid, right? The, it, it was his work that landed the plane. He's the one that, he's up there, you know, pushing levers and pulling the wheel and, you know, doing whatever's got to be done. I, mean, I don't know anything about landing a plane, but evidently I could. <laughs> it's his work. He's the one physically doing it. But at the same time, his work is... The guy on the ground, his work is foundational to the kid in the airplane, right? Because without the guy on the ground, like, that thing's crashing. His work, the, the guy trying to land the plane can do it because the other guy's working. And again, you can't push it too far, but I think it might help to get the idea that you and I work because God is at work. So what does that mean for us? Look, like, like Joshua, this is what lets you and I charge into battle against our sin with any confidence. You and I get to, get to engage in a battle against sin and actually take it head on and fight against it and actually have confidence in that battle because it's, it's, we're not doing it in our strength because God has promised to work in us. So what that means is that when you wake up in the morning and you think back on your night before and you think about how you, you did it again, you swore that you wouldn't. I'm never going to do that again. And you wake up and you think about it and you're like, yep, I did it again. And when you think to yourself, I guess it's just always going to be that way. Right? This truth God doesn't just call you to fight. He calls you to fight with the knowledge, with the truth that He is fighting with you, in you, through you. And so it lets you think, yes, I did fall, right? I I lost that battle. And I have every reason to expect that I'm going to win the next one. Even if it's the 5,000th or 5 millionth time Right? This gives you the confidence to say, God is at work, and I'm going to face it head on. I'm going to struggle against it. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to keep fighting against it, because, because it's not my strength. So we see that we see we're called to fight. We're called to fight because God is fighting. Thirdly and finally, I want you to see that we fight against this enemy together. We fight against the enemy together. But we need to take a minute here at the end to focus on what's happening up on that hill. At first, it seems like a great thing. All Moses has to do is hold his hands up, and Israel will win. And it seems like, oh, this is awesome, right? This is super easy. And it is easy for a couple of minutes, a few minutes, right? Some of you have done it, right? Especially if you hold anything, like any little bit of weight in your hand. But then his hands start to lower and Israel starts to lose. So what happens? Well, Moses' 
Moses' friends help him. They, uh, they come and they put a rock on her, sit on the rock, and then they hold up his arms. And so his hands are raised, and Israel wins. All right, so what's that all about? What's going on there? Now look, you can read, uh, as I did, you can read lots of different interpretations of that, and some of them are super bizarre. Um, you know, you get a lot of like, this is a picture of Jesus, you know, with his arms stretched out on the cross and these two, the two thieves on the cross. And, you know, like, um, no, right? Sorry. So what's going on here? Look, here it is. The, what's going on is that Moses' brother and, and friend are helping him. There it is, right? There's your brilliant exegetical insight. That's what you're supposed to see. Moses couldn't. Moses couldn't do it by himself. Moses, as as he's helping fight in his way, he can't fight the enemy by himself. He needed help. That's the picture. So look, what does that what does that mean for us, right? I mean, I think you get the idea. Um, and I, I worked hard to come up with an illustration for this and I asked a pastor friend of mine and he, he said, oh, I got one. There's a story in the Old Testament where, um, where Moses can't hold his arms up and so his friend, like, fair enough, good, good illustration. So, all right, I'm going to use that. Um, but what, what you see, Christianity is, is a team sport. You can't play it by yourself. It means that you and I need each other You cannot fight against sin by yourself. You have to have the help of other Christians. It means that you you absolutely need, it's not optional, you need Christian community. What we call the church. It means you need to have people involved in your life to encourage you, to help you fight, to to help you recognize sin, to help you fight against it. Uh, listen to James uh, five sixteen. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other. Right? Every I mean, read through the New Testament. Everything about it is just pointing you. Certainly, first and foremost, to Jesus. But it's always in the context of community. We have to have each other. It means that, that you and I are not going to begin to see victory over our sin until you... It means that you have to drag that thing into the light and, and show it to somebody else, quite frankly. You need to get help from Christian brothers and sisters. And look, that, that means that some of you need to, for the, for the first time, you need to talk to somebody else about that thing. Because you're not going to beat it on your own. You can't. That means that some of you need to talk to at least a friend. Or talk to to me. Or talk to Olivia. And you need to talk about your your addiction. Or your... um, Or the way you you control your eating. Or the way your same-sex attraction... Or whatever it is that you struggle with. 
Because you're fighting it by yourself and, and you need help. We all do. And look, the, the, the first and foremost, right, what that Christian community is going to do is point, we're going to point each other to the banner, the banner of the Lord. And we're going to end with this thought. You see that in verse 15. In response, uh, in response to all this, Moses builds an altar to God and he calls it, the Lord is my banner. A banner is what, the, what, a, what an army would take into battles, you know, a pole and it would sometimes have some sort of cloth on it, right? Maybe an insignia that symbolized, the, you know, referenced the king. And it basically was, uh, it would remind you who you're fighting for. And it would show you, right, as long as your banner was raised, you would know that we're in this fight. This fight is on. Remind you who you're fighting for. And that, that seems to be, uh, it's, a, it's, a little, it's a little cloudy, but it seems to be what the, the staff raising, a big part of what the staff raising is all about. That this, this is their banner, right? The Lord is my banner. And what I, what I want you to see is that uh, Isaiah 11 picks up on this. And he says, uh, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, it's the same word as banner, for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So Isaiah picks up on this idea of, of banner, and he says, One day the root of Jesse is, will be the banner. Not will hold up the banner, but will be the banner. Right? The root of Jesse, right? I'll spare you, Jesus Christ. I'll spare you the, you know, like walking you through it, right? In case you weren't sure. That all of this is pointing us to the fact that Jesus Christ is our banner. He, right, just like that staff, uh, that in him we see the judgment of God, and the judgment of God that he takes on himself is our salvation. And that's what, that's what God offers us for free. That in community, we're going, we're going to always, when we, when we confess our struggles to one another, as dark as they are, as, as, as tenacious as it is, as repetitive as it is, what we need and what we're going to do is point each other to that banner, to Jesus, and say, you are forgiven. That is not your identity. It does not define you. And you can fight against it, and I will fight with you, because Jesus fights with you and has fought for you. And he has won, and he is winning, and he will win. That's the good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that truly is good news. Good news that every one of us needs to hear. Would you help us to hear with our ears, to believe with our hearts. And we ask it in your name. Amen.